Hi, and welcome to Criminal Justice Natters with me, Ed Johnston. On tonight's show, we are joined by David Rudolph, the lead defence lawyer in the Netflix documentary The Staircase and the co-host of the Abuse of Power podcast, which is available on Spotify and wherever you get your podcast from. Uh, This evening, we're going to be talking about The Staircase, criminal justice in general, and the owl theory with the staircase and then some of the more contentious issues with the abuse of power podcast so let's get to it hi david thanks for joining us this evening on criminal justice natters uh i met you back in february where you came over to the uk to give a talk at ue how have you been what have you been up to since then well (laughs) And it's nice. It's nice for you to invite me. I appreciate uh, being on. Uh, I didn't know what natters meant. I had to. I had to <laughs> about that. But I've been informed, uh, so I've learned something. Yeah. Um, I, I've been the same way that everybody else in the world has been. I've been quarantining. Uh, yeah. To stay safe. Uh, uh, you know, doing the podcast, uh, working remotely, uh, doing a lot of Zoom. Uh, so. Uh, I assume that's pretty much the way things are uh, over over there as well. Absolutely, yeah. Loads of Zoom in Blackboard Collaborate, and uh, yeah, not 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 many uh, actually seeing people, which is unfortunate. But um, this exactly. is one way to keep in touch, I guess. Um, you mentioned the podcast, um, which is is excellent. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed all the episodes. Thank you. Um, Thank you. What what gave you and your partner the sort of idea to jump into the realm of podcasting? Well, you know, I think it had to do with the speaking engagements that I that I did after the staircase. Um, you know, I, I did several several tours around the UK. Uh, I did uh, I did a number of cities in the United States. We even went over to Australia. I did uh, Scandinavia, uh, and and the response was just amazing uh, to me. Uh, the, the numbers of people who turned out and who were really really interested. Uh, in the issues, you know, not so much the sensationalism of the case, but the issues that the documentary really raised about really the abuse of power uh, by people in positions of authority in the criminal justice system. Uh, And so when I realized that there was a a market for that, if you will, or at least uh, an interest in that, uh, Sonia and I started talking about uh, maybe trying to do a podcast uh, and I had actually connected with the producer of An Innocent Man, which was a mm-hmm. documentary that that played on Netflix. Uh, we had sort of connected via Twitter. I told him how much I enjoyed Innocent Man. And he, he told me how much he liked The Staircase. And so that led to a relationship. Uh, and uh, uh, he was interested in doing something in the podcast realm. Uh, and so as, as with most things, it was serendipitous and one thing led to another. Uh, and, uh, here we are a year later, we've got, uh, 11 episodes uh, done, uh, and hopefully we'll have a season two. Uh, absolutely. That, that was one of our first questions from, from Caroline Jenkins that said that she absolutely loved the pod, the podcast. Um, and she, she wondered if you were going to make more of them. So hopefully we're going to see or hear some more of them. Yeah, we'd, um, we'd certainly like we'd certainly like to, but you know we also want to keep up the production quality, um, yeah. which has been I think very high, uh, and and we want to keep it that way. 
So for that, we need some funding, uh, and uh, and that's what we're, we're sort of looking for right now. Excellent. Uh, Caroline also asks about what changes do you think need to be made to the legal system to improve fair trial rights and reduce the likelihood of a miscarriage of justice? Uh, you know, we could be here all day, but <laughs> we could. But you know, I think I think really the most fundamental thing. Uh, and I don't know if this applies as much in Great Britain as it does here, is how police officers are trained, and particularly with regard to the psychology of doing investigations. Because I think at the root of most wrongful convictions is something that's called confirmation bias, uh, where the police uh, early on in a case uh, get it in their minds uh, that this or that person committed the crime. Uh, and, and once they have that theory, uh, the investigation changes from a fact-based investigation, which is what it should be, to a suspect-based inv investigation, which is where they're simply looking for evidence to support their theory. And then when you have confirmation bias, it leads to you know, tunnel vision. Uh, and then what happens is that the evidence that they find uh, or the information that they find that supports their theory gets a great deal of attention and importance. And the evidence that they find or the information that they find that is inconsistent with their theory sort of gets shoved to one side uh, and not paid attention to. And then that process sort of continues on until, you know, they finally get to the point where they've, they've sort of um, screwed the investigation to the point where no one else could really be uh, prosecuted because they've they've sort of lost all the leads or focused on the wrong things. Uh, and interestingly enough, uh, in many of these cases, it's the cases where there's the least amount of other evidence that leads to the corruption, you know, that leads to the uh, coerced confession or that leads to the planting of evidence or that leads to the fake science because they don't have any real evidence. So I think, you know, to the extent that uh, early on in the process, uh, police officers could be trained and, and DAs, prosecutors as well, could be trained to understand what confirmation bias is and what it does and what tunnel vision is and how it affects investigations. Uh, you know, until somebody is aware of what's going on, uh, they really can't do much to stop it. Uh, and and doctors and pilots and other people are trained uh, in recognizing confirmation bias and in coming up with methods to avoid it. Uh, but police officers are not. Uh, and, and I think that would be a really good first step in trying to change uh, uh, how things then go wrong. That's a, a really interesting point and I, I suppose I've got a, a couple of follow-up questions from that. Um, in terms of the the police in their confirmation bias in the DA, do you think it's to do with the society, the, the pressure that society places on those bodies to find someone not necessarily the right person but in a high profile case in a murder case the public wants someone apprehended quickly 
Uh, do you think that poses a problem for sort of law enforcement or, or do you think? I, I think it poses a problem for everybody. You know, when, whenever, whenever any of us are operating under pressure to produce a certain result, uh, we can get sloppy and we can, and we can cut corners to try to, to uh, respond to that pressure. So I, I don't think it's just a problem for police officers or prosecutors. I think it's a problem for all of us. Uh, it's just that when it hits police officers or prosecutors, the results can be devastating to an innocent mm. person. Yeah. And in terms of the evidence that you, we were talking about that maybe the police just kind of ignore and put to one side opposed to investigate that, you know, doesn't necessarily fit this confirmation bias. Are they, un, are they under any duty to disclose that evidence because it might undermine their case to the defense team? Or would it be left for you as a defense lawyer to, to no, find? No. In the United States, at least, uh, uh, they're, they're required under the Constitution yeah. to provide that evidence to the prosecutor, and the prosecutor is required under the Constitution to provide that evidence to the defense. But here's where, you know, what you might call noble cause corruption uh, strikes, because where the evidence is thin, especially, uh, and there's all this exculpatory evidence or evidence that's inconsistent with their theory sitting to one side. There's a great temptation, not because they're trying to, to convict an innocent person, but because they believe yeah. that they've got the right person. So there's this great uh, temptation to not produce that and to not give it to the prosecutor even because the prosecutor is going to have to give it to the defense. And I've seen that in case after case here in the United States. Uh, and, uh, and it's a real problem. You know, uh, the, it, it's come to be called noble cause corruption because the person is doing it, quote, for the right reason. Uh, you know, I call it the ends justifying the means. Yeah. Um, and uh, and, and it's, it's, not a good, it's not a good way of conducting anybody's business. No, certainly not. And, and it's a similar approach in, in England and Wales in terms of what needs to be disclosed to the other side. Unused material will go to the prosecutor and then it should go to um, the defence. But by and large, I, I would say the regime doesn't work as it's intended. To, to work it, it's deeply flawed um we've had we've had obviously loads of questions about um the staircase and in particular the Alford plea um, um because to you to sort of anyone that studies law in in england and wales this is completely bizarre uh, it, absolutely. and my, my my first question about the Alford plea would be is is this common in uh, in the united states or is it something that was on is a state by state basis it, it, well, it's state by state, uh, uh, and my guess is that there are a number of states that allow it. Uh, there may be some that don't. Uh, I haven't really studied that very carefully. Uh, but uh, the United States Supreme Court has authorized it. They've accepted it as a, as a valid way of proceeding, uh, and it makes it doesn't make any logical sense. So let's be clear about that. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, and I've talked with uh, barristers and solicitors over there who say they can't wrap their minds around it, that they couldn't, they couldn't plead someone guilty if they were saying they were innocent. Uh, yeah. And I understand that too. Uh, but, but here's, 
I guess maybe it comes down to sort of a question of practicalities. You know, the system in the United States is so dependent on plea bargains uh, and so dependent on uh, sort of running numbers through the system. Otherwise, the system would just break down. Uh, that I think the courts have decided that in order to process cases, particularly cases that are very uh, uh, contested uh, and where neither side is terribly confident of winning, that in essence, there's a, uh, there's a middle ground uh, where the person enters a guilty plea uh, because either they've been in jail for, you know, X number of months or years and they just want to get out. Or, you know, they, they're they afraid that they're going to get convicted again. Uh, or uh, they're old, you know, they've gotten to a certain stage in life where they just, they don't want it anymore. Yeah. I mean, they're ill. You know, there's lots of different reasons why people decide, I don't want to fight this anymore, even though I'm not guilty of this. On the other hand, from the prosecution's perspective, if the case is weak, they don't want to spend the resources uh, and, and waste the time and money to prosecute something uh, that's weak. But they also, as you point out, come under political pressure to not just dismiss a case. Yeah. And so there's pressure on, on both sides. And so you sort of meet in the middle in this sort of crazy place uh, where everybody, everybody basically declares victory and defeat at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and, and so that's, that's the rationale behind it. Um, I mean, I mean, even as you explain it, it still sounds utterly bizarre. Rika Ryan asks, um, what's the genesis of the plea? Where, where, where did this idea come? Is it new? Is it old? No, it actually it actually arose in North Carolina. The case in front of the United States Supreme Court that approved it is called uh, North Carolina versus Alford. Uh, Alford, A-L-F-O-R-D, was a defendant who wanted to do this. Uh, and I guess at the time, uh, the state wasn't accepting it. Uh, so he appealed to the Supreme Court and said, I should be allowed to do this. And the Supreme Court said, okay, now, is, does it go back hundreds of years or decades? No. My, my, rec, my best recollection is it, it goes back to the 70s or 80s. Okay. Um, so it's been around for a while. It's not a new thing. No. Um, um, so, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, the, that's the history of it. Thank you. Okay. Um, thanks for explaining the offer, please. It, it is um, just... Very, very bizarre. Uh, do you think it? it uh, the last episode of the staircase was called flawed justice, and I think that's a really sort of neat description of what it is. Everybody wins, but everybody loses. Do you think it's flawed? Do I think it? It depends on how you define flawed. Uh, you know, it, it certainly, it certainly is unsatisfying uh, to everybody involved. Uh, you know, uh, Kathleen Peterson's family was obviously not satisfied with that, no. as you, as they expressed uh, yeah. vehemently in the uh, in the documentary. Uh, Michael and his family were not terribly satisfied with it. 
as well, uh, because he's left with this, you know, criminal conviction. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, as, as I think he explained, he just wasn't willing to roll the dice again. He, you know, he had played at that card table and he felt yeah. it was stacked against him. Um, and he was 72 years old. Uh, and, you know, you reach a point in life where, you know, it's sort of time to, to move on if mm-hmm. you can. Um, yeah, absolutely. So um, it, it, it's flawed in that sense that nobody's happy with it. Uh, but, you know, lots of deals are flawed in the sense, you know, and, and some people say a really good deal is where nobody's happy with it. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and, and plea bargaining is flawed. I mean, let's be, yeah. let's be honest about it. Plea bargaining is flawed. The amount of sentence, the, the length of sentences, at least in the United States, is flawed. You know, people ought not be going to life, to, to prison for life, for selling drugs. You, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. th- there's lots of flaws in the system. I don't think that this flaw <laughs> is a particularly evil one. No. No, and uh, the, the the idea of sort of the life without parole, um, I've, I've got a, a, a dissertation student who's looking at sort of a comparison between life without parole equating to being like a, a death sentence in England and Wales. We have about 50, somewhere between 58 and 63 prisoners out of 85,000 in England and Wales that will not see the light of day again. Um, I believe somewhere in the US, the figure is somewhere, somewhere between 50 and 60,000. I oh, mean, I, I would be surprised if it's less than that. Right, and and, and a lot of those, and a lot of those are juveniles, people who were yeah. sentenced to life without parole as a juvenile, and and indeed one of the episodes that that you listen to uh, involves one of those juveniles who has since gone on to do amazing things in prison, uh, and yet uh, is not yet eligible for parole. Yeah. Do you do you think that person will eventually get parole, or or do you think there's no opportunity if you're given no, he, life without? He, he's got a hearing on it. The U.S. Supreme Court has has set down some guidelines about when uh, life without parole for someone who was convicted as a juvenile is constitutional, uh, mm-hmm. and you sort of have to show that the person is irredeemable. Uh, yeah. And and in. Efren's case, I don't think they're going to be able to show that, but uh, he's going to have a hearing on that issue sometime in the not too distant future. Okay, thank you. Um, unsurprisingly, we have, we have uh, questions concerning owls, <laughs> which I, I guess is not surprising. Um, and again, another question from Rika Ryan. She asks, if you had time to sort of, because this came late in the day in, in the first trial, if you had time to present this evidence to the jury, do you think they would have believed it or does it sound or do you think they would have it would be as outlandish as what it sounds to everyone when you first hear this theory? I think the problem with the theory is that you really need to back it up with facts and circumstances and experts. It's not a theory that you can just sort of stand up and hmm. articulate. Uh, and expect people to believe it, it, you know, because it does sound bizarre. Um, so I don't think it, you know, if, if I had had a little bit more time, you know, if, if we were in the middle of the trial, I still couldn't have done what I would have needed yeah. to do to really flesh, no, no pun intended, to flesh that theory out. Uh, yeah. and, 
and and present it in a persuasive way. Now, you know, if we flash forward to now, uh, could that theory be presented in a persuasive way? I think it could. You know, does that mean that I believe that that's what happened? I don't know. You know, I, I you know what I believe is that Michael did not murder Kathleen. Whether it was a fall, whether it was something else, I don't know. Um, but I think you could certainly mount a persuasive uh, argument uh, for the owl theory at this point. Yeah. And, and, and another tack on question was, do you think there's any substance to that theory? But I think you've just cu covered that quite neatly. Um, yeah, I, I do. I, I, think there's certainly, I, I think there's certainly evidence that could be used to support that theory. And I think I might have even spoken about that uh, when I was at the university with you. You did, yes. Uh, it was extremely interesting. And, and just the sheer sort of span of the owl, um, I just surprising because when I first heard this theory, I was thinking, this sounds bizarre. And then you, you think, think well, parody, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And then you think, well, actually, this thing is is big. Yeah. Well, except I don't think it happened in the staircase. I think it happened outside the house. The door. Right. I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, so if but you yeah. remember there was blood outside the house as well. Yes, so that's if, it happened, if it happened, I think the theory is it happened outside. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, Michael's case, obviously there was the sort of, in the documentary, the revelation of the extramarital affair. And keeping in mind, you know, we're talking in, uh, the sort of early 2000s, do you think the fact that the, um, the, the extramarital affair was homosexual in nature, did that pose any problems to the jury, bearing in mind the time and the place of, of, of where we are and not necessarily today? Yeah, and, and let me slightly correct you because it really wasn't an affair. Uh, Michael had agreed to meet with this person uh, on a you know sort of random basis one time, uh, and they had never actually met. Uh, it was called off. So what was introduced were some emails back and forth setting up a rendezvous as opposed to a uh, uh, an affair that uh, never happened. Uh, so, uh, you know, the question I posed to the judge at the time is, well, suppose this had been a woman and yeah. Michael had been texting with her about a rendezvous and then it never happened. Would that be a motive for murder? You know, I don't think so. Uh, so clearly the, the fact that it, that Michael was bisexual uh, was a real factor in this case. And certainly Freda Black, uh, in her closing argument, uh, played on that mercilessly. Uh, and, and it was a complete character assassination. It was, it was presented in the, in the guise of a motive, uh, but it was, it was character assassination, pure and simple. And mm. I think it had an impact. How much? I don't know, but I think it did. Yeah. Um, James McKenna asks concerning the sort of Netflix filming and obviously the subsequent media attention drawn to cases like uh, The Staircase and, and, and Making a Murderer. Do you think that the media or Netflix coverage has had any impact on subsequent cases, either negatively or, or positively? I think it's had an impact, not necessarily on a particular case, uh, although it may have. Uh, 
but I think the real impact is on people's um, uh, impressions of the criminal justice system, their impressions of uh, defense lawyers, uh, their impressions of expert witnesses. I think, you know, millions of people have now been educated uh, that, you know, what defense lawyers do is not dishonorable. It's not uh, trying to, to cheat, uh, you know, that we're really about trying to make sure that the system works and that proof is, is presented and that if the proof isn't presented, uh, the person is found not guilty. Uh, and that's what we do. And we do it really seriously according to the standards that apply to everybody in our profession. So I think a lot of people just didn't realize that until they started seeing these documentaries. Um, I think a lot of people thought that if a, an expert gets on the stand, especially if that expert is called by the state, uh, by the government, uh, that expert should be believed. I think people mm. have now woken up to the fact that that may not be true. So I, I think that that these documentaries have had the effect of sensitizing people about the need for some reforms. Uh, and I think these kinds of reforms generally come from the bottom up, not from the top down. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that over time, uh, educating people in this way is going to have an impact. And it's why I went around speaking about the staircase. Uh, and it's why Sonia and I have, have started this podcast to try to keep that conversation going. Yeah. I suppose it's really important as well. I, I, I think for the wider public in terms of illuminating problems that exist within, within the system itself. So like you say, you know, just because it's a state sets experts witness, it doesn't necessarily mean it, that person has to be believed there, there could be another uh, another explanation and um, that yeah. person and that person may have their own motives to to shade their testimony not mm -hmm. having to do perhaps with money uh, yeah. but having to do with trying to help their colleague uh, you know uh, prove his case Annie Livermore asks again about the staircase, about your um, your sort of work in practice. Um, how long were your days at the sort like in terms of hours, in terms of the peak uh, uh, of the trial? Well, you know, there was there was no peak in that trial. There was mostly, <laughs> there was mostly a very high <clears throat> plateau uh, from from most of the trial. We, you know, and and it's not just me, and it's not just this case. Any good lawyer who's on or, or advocate or, or barrister, who's on trial in a, in a serious case, uh, we're not working eight hour days. You know, we, we may be in court for eight hours, uh, but for every hour you spend in court, you're probably putting in another hour preparing for court the next day. Uh, so it wouldn't be at all uh, uncommon uh, for us to get home from court you know, grab something to eat and then work until we went to sleep late that night. Uh, weekends, sort of the same thing. Uh, you, you don't take weekends off, at least I never did. And I, I think most lawyers who are really doing this stuff seriously don't. Uh, you're working. Uh, so it's an enormous expenditure of time, um, which, you know, also makes it enormously expensive if somebody is paying for it uh, themselves. Because, mm -hmm. you know, I will just tell you that, that, I had no new clients uh, come in 
while that trial was going on. I mean, they all knew that I wasn't available. Uh, yeah. So, you know, uh, there's a real lag after that trial ends before, uh, you know, business starts getting back to even normal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of, of the sort of trial and, and, and the defense of Michael Peterson, do you, do you still act as a defense lawyer today or have you more moved over into the sort of media and criminal justice education type role with no, the podcast? No, no, I still have, I still have active cases. Uh, uh, I don't have any active criminal defense case right now. I have uh, three or four uh, wrongful conviction cases where we're suing uh, to try to get compensation for people who've spent decades in prison. Uh, I'm, I'm representing somebody who was defamed uh, in a news conference, uh, and we're trying to get that person compensation. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, my, my practice is still, I, I try to be selective. Uh, I don't, I don't take everything that, that walks in the door. Uh, I try to refer it out to other good lawyers. Um, okay. yeah, no, I, I, I think I'd be lost without any cases at all. Uh, but we are trying to, to also broaden, uh, you know, b before the COVID hit, uh, I was sort of hoping to be able to to do a lot of speaking. Uh, that's yeah. obviously been very cur curtailed as a result. Yeah. Do, do you enjoy the talks? Obviously, they must all be relatively similar. I mean, I, I imagine the one you gave with, with me at UE would have been very similar to hundreds well, of others. Well, you know, if, if I'm doing them one after the other, uh, there's a little bit of a Groundhog Day uh, yeah. kind of feeling to it, uh, but you know, even now, I mean, we're we're covering much of the same territory, but I don't feel bored because you know the questions a little bit different, uh, my answers are a little bit different. Uh, you know, I may stress one thing one night and something else another night. Uh, you know, I, I'm not one of these people who sort of memorizes what I'm going to say. And then just spits it out time after time. Uh, I, I enjoy the questions. I enjoy the the interaction. Uh, I try not to be defensive about it. Uh, you know, I try to listen. Uh, I try to learn. Uh, yeah. So so I enjoy it. Good, good. It's great. It's great to speak to you. And I know our students absolutely loved the uh, the the talk back back in February. In terms of listening. Um, when I was I was watching, as I said, the the final episode last night, and what I didn't notice when I first watched the show, but I picked up on it last night, is when uh, Candice was speaking during the Alford uh, Alford plea um, about you in particular, and you, you you're there and you you're looking and you're listening, and I was just wondering what was going through your head is this sort of this this attack was ongoing it, it was it was a, a fairly um sustained attack on my character yeah uh, and um you know i i think what i was thinking is that it's really sad that she is so consumed by her anger uh and and her um uh just blind belief in, in what she thinks happened, that she can't even accept that, that I was just doing what I thought was right, that yeah. I didn't do anything 
anything in that case. And she couldn't point to anything I did that was unethical or wrong other than I defended Michael. Yeah. Uh, and, and so I really, in, to be honest, I felt sorry for her, um, which was better than being angry at her. Right. <laughs> uh, and so that I sat there and I just said to myself, this is sad. You know, it feels sad for her. Don't, don't feel angry. Just feel sad that that's, that's what she's left with at this point. If, if Michael elected to not take uh, the Alfred plea and wanted to retry the case, um, would, I, I, I've read elsewhere that the Elizabeth Ratliff sort of evidence of the previous death would not be admissible. Obviously, Dwayne Deaver's evidence has been completely discredited and, you know, much less would have been made, if anything, regarding um, Michael's rendezvous with, with the other man. The prosecution don't have much of a case without those three factors, do they? Correct, which is why you had the Alford plea. I yeah. mean, reality is that they had almost no case mm. without those three things. And Judge Hudson, in the documentary, made it pretty clear. Now, we didn't know this for sure, uh, but he made it pretty clear afterwards that he wasn't about to let that Germany stuff in or the bisexuality in. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and, and certainly Deaver was gone. So yeah. Mike had gotten another blood spatter expert to testify that the scene was consistent with a beating, perhaps. Yeah. Um, uh, but um, I think that's why you saw the Alford plea because uh the sisters, Candace uh, and uh, and Laurie, just would not let go of that case. They would not let, you know, if the prosecutor had dismissed that case because he couldn't prove it, uh, they would have gone after him just mm -hmm. the way they went after me. Yeah. Um, yeah. And he knew that. Yeah. So they, he did. So he came to Michael with the Alford plea. Sort of had, or did well, you go with it? We, we had told them early on uh, yeah. that the case needed to be settled uh, and that the only condition was that we would not ever say, we would not, two, two conditions. Number one, Michael would never say that he killed Kathleen. And number two, Michael would not spend another minute incarcerated. Mm -hmm. He wouldn't even go to the jail to be released. He was going to have to be released directly from the courtroom. And those were the two absolute conditions. Uh, and, and so the offered plea accomplished both of those conditions. Yeah. Um, just to, to move on to uh, the abuse of power uh, podcast, um, just, just before we, we, we wrap up, I mean, all the episodes there are, are tragic, tragic stories. Is, is there one in particular that stands out for sort of level of tragedy to you? You know, that's a difficult question. Yeah. You know, we represented Tim Bridges. So that yeah. one, uh, and, and, you know, every time he talks about his case and gets around to talking about his mom, he breaks down just uncontrollably. Uh, so that, that always got to me. But I think in some ways the very saddest is the mom yeah. uh, who was convicted of murdering her three-year-old son in that arson. Uh, yeah. Yeah, case, which turned out not to be arson at all. 
Yeah. Uh, and, and I just can't, I can't imagine being a parent, losing your child uh, in that way, and then being prosecuted for it and being convicted for it and going to prison for it. Mm. Uh, and then it turns out that the expert falsified a report uh, yeah. showing that there was accelerant in the child's bedroom when there wasn't that, you know, to me, that's, that's everything. Uh, that, that's every person's nightmare. Yeah. 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 That, 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 that was the one that stood out for me my, in my notes here that, that, that would be my one. Um, I, I thought that one was particularly horrific. Is there any right to sort of, compensation for for that or would that or would that person have to fight for compensation it depends on the state um uh and in some states you're automatically entitled to compensation although you have to waive your right to sue okay um, so that's an interesting choice you know in texas yeah. i I think it's a, up to $100,000 a year, up to a certain number of years, but you have to agree to waive any right to sue. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I'm not sure that's fair, really, you know, because part of the purpose of suing is to is to have some some closure on what happened to you and, and be able to expose uh, what happened so it doesn't happen to other people. Um so there are some states that require that. There are other states in, in North Carolina. Uh, you have to either have been found uh, by what's called the Actual Innocence Commission to be innocent, or the governor has to issue you a pardon of innocence, and then you're, you're eligible for up to $50,000 a year, uh, up to 15 years or $750,000. But you don't, have to, you don't have to waive anything. Right, um, okay. So it varies from state to state, uh, but uh, in the states where there's none or where there is, but you have to make a choice, uh, obviously there's, there's compensation available if you file a lawsuit uh, and, and you're successful. Yeah, thank you. Um, one final question from Wolfie Ryan concerning the, the sort of death penalty. And there was a case obviously in the uh, Abuse of Power podcast where um, a man was executed and his daughter continues to fight for his, his, his innocence uh, to right. clear his name. I mean, you can't take that sentence back, obviously, because you've already executed uh, the, uh, the, the, the person in question. But does that just simply tell us that the death penalty is wrong because we make mistakes? Well, from my perspective, yes. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, you don't want to make irreversible mistakes. And it's not a little mistake. You know, you're essentially murdering somebody in the name of the state. So, uh, and I think it's instructive that the state of Tennessee has fought uh, that DNA test. I mean, what, what are they fighting about? Why are they fighting it? You know, if it's done and his DNA matched, okay, then, then we all know it was a righteous conviction, and whether you're for or against the death penalty, um, you can't you can't really question the underlying facts. On the other hand, if he's innocent, mm. doesn't that say something about the criminal justice system and and 
And shouldn't the people of Tennessee know uh, that their criminal justice system executed somebody who wasn't guilty? Which means, by the way, that the guilty person was never even prosecuted. Mm -hmm. Because that's the flip side of a wrongful conviction. Yeah. The flip side of a wrongful conviction is, in essence, a guilty person going free to be able to maim or kill or attack other people. Yes. It's not a cost-free mistake in any way. No. And I I think it ties back into the earlier discussion we were having about, you know, the pressures of of getting someone. And that's why it's important to get that person right, not for closure to the families, but to protect the public. Because if you've got the wrong person, as you say, the other person is still free to carry on as they please. Exactly. Thank you very much, David. That was very, very interesting. Um, all right. Well, thank you for your questions. They were all great. Uh, and uh, and as I said, I you know uh, uh, I might not want to do this every day, uh, but uh, you know occasionally having interesting questions and being able to talk about this again uh, sort of refreshes my spirit. So so thank you for that. Brilliant. Thanks for joining us, David. Take care. Thank you, David, for what was a really interesting and illuminating. Uh, discussion concerning criminal justice issues, not only in the USA, but here in England and Wales as well. Um, I think we covered a lot of ground which should give our viewers and listeners um, some serious food for thought uh, concerning problems within both of our justice systems and more globally as well concerning the death penalty. So thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to to come on the show. Uh, Please join me next week everybody where i will be speaking to jerry buting from season one of making a murderer which is available on netflix and um we'll be covering a lot of issues uh with with jerry concerning uh the case of stephen avery and also some more contemporary issues in the criminal justice system if you have an idea for a show and you'd like to get involved please reach out to me i'm available on Twitter. My handle is on the credits, but if we're listening on Spotify, my username is at Edward M. Johnston. I'm also searchable on LinkedIn, or you can contact the the show's Twitter handle at CNatters. Look forward to speaking with you uh, next week.